K-Squid listeners, it's every other Sunday again, and you're listening to Sustainability Now, a bi-weekly K-Squid radio show focused on environment, sustainability, and social justice in the Monterey Bay region, California, and the world. I'm your host, Ronnie Lipschitz. The world's climate is changing, and it is changing more and more rapidly. What are we to do? If you've been paying attention to the media, you might have heard about the 27th Conference of the Parties to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, now going on in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. There are some 200 governments represented at the conference, along with 30,000 attendees, so it is quite the party. This is actually the 30th such meeting, beginning with the Earth Summit in Rio de Janeiro in 1992. So the world's governments have been wrestling with the challenge of climate change for more than 30 years, with precious little to show for all of that. My guests today are Dr. Sander Chan and Andrew Deneau, who are at the conference observing and conducting research. Sander Chan is a senior researcher at the Global Center on Adaptation Research an innovation hub in Groningen, Netherlands, and an assistant professor at Rabau University in Nijmegen, the Netherlands. Andrew Deneau is a researcher in environmental governance at IDOS, the German Institute of Development and Sustainability in Bonn, Germany. Well, Sander Chan and Andrew Deneau, welcome to Sustainability Now. Thank you. Thank you. Um, in uh, my introduction to the show, I explained what the Conference of the Parties is, but perhaps you could try to describe the conference setting, who attends, what kinds of events and activities have been happening, and maybe even what are the goals of the conference? Yeah, so um, you might expect that, um, you know, the COP is uh, negotiations between governments. So you would expect a lot of government uh, representatives, and that is indeed the case. But I would say that, in fact, you will see more people from uh, civil society, from businesses, and also people kind of belonging to the media. Um, uh, uh, there's big media center here um, who are also walking around here. And in fact, uh, at this COP, the moment you enter, uh, you first see a huge media center on your right, and then you go through different uh, halls and tents uh, where you see a lot of exhibits and pavilions. Uh, and I think there's about like 500 side events uh, going on uh, at the COP. And side events are uh, kind of events that are not negotiations, that are kind of organized on the side by civil society, by businesses, by so-called uh, observers of uh, of this process um so i i think over the last year i would say over the last decade like these side events have grown so much uh, in numbers and in size that you could almost say that it has become the main event um you see that uh 
you know, the negotiations themselves are, of course, important. But um, yeah, more than anything, COP seems to be like this annually kind of returning traveling climate circus. Um, and back in 1995, uh, this was when the first COP was held in Berlin. There were about 4,000 attendees. Last year in Glasgow, we had almost 40,000. Uh, and half of these were media, NGO observers, international organizations. So now COP is a place mm -hmm. for all of these other actors to get together. And since 2014, we've seen the launch of over 29,000 climate commitments by all types of actors, um, more than 600 initiatives. And uh, I think the total is around 70,000 actors. So it's really grown uh, on the non-state actor side. I like that that term climate circus. Um, you know, I noted that this is actually the 30th meeting um, if you start with the Earth Summit in, in Rio in 1992. And I actually attended one of the preparatory conferences to all of this in, uh, I think it was in 90 or 91 in Geneva. Um, and I'm sure there weren't nearly that many people in attendance then. Um, so uh, what what... Uh, are you allowed to attend the formal sessions? Yeah, I mean, there's um, always kind of closed door meetings right. uh, where parties, parties being governments, of course, uh, prepare um, uh, prepared the negotiations. And of course, we're not allowed there. But in principle, we are in what is called the blue zone. <laughs> and the blue zone is kind of the, the restricted area where all the negotiations take place, where the so-called official side events take place. And these are the side events that are uh, acknowledged or, or kind of uh, have been given the okay by the UNFCCC secretariat. So uh, this is kind of the, uh, the, the most important quote-unquote part of the, the COP venue. But the COP venue is even bigger because there's also a green zone where more people are allowed in. And I, I I am not too often in the green zone, but the times I have been there, it feels like a trade fair. Uh, you see all kinds of companies like with stands and, you know, showing off their latest products and innovations. Um, and uh, this green zone is often um, open to a much larger public. Hmm. Well, have you attended any previous conferences, uh, COP conferences? Yeah, I have. Um, so uh, this is my eighth COP. Um, uh, my very first one was in uh, 2014. Mm -hmm. uh, that was in uh, Lima in Peru. It was a very important COP because uh, that was a COP uh, that kind of prepared the way to the Paris Agreement, uh, which was the year after. So um, I think, you know, having been in COPS for the last um, uh, eight years um, is, was very good for me because I could see like, you know, what was before uh, the Paris Agreement, what happened during the Paris Agreement in uh, the Paris negotiations in 2015 and how it has since developed um, uh, before the COP uh, uh, in, in, in Paris in 2015, um, there was a lot of anxiety about whether uh, governments would 
reach any diplomatic agreement, really. And um, uh, 2015-2016, I felt like there was this more positive vibe because, you know, we have achieved a big diplomatic breakthrough where almost 200 countries have, you know, uh, ag agreed uh, on, on an, uh, an agreement that on paper looks quite ambitious, uh, you know, wanting to limit uh, global warming to uh, 1.5 degrees. Um, but I also feel like, you know, as we are moving into implementing uh, the Paris Agreement, you know, more and more question marks are uh, raised at the moment. Um, uh, first of all, like, you know, we haven't seen that uh, governments have, you know, upped their ambitions uh, a lot since uh, since. 2015. So, uh, you know, if we look at what governments do at COPs and what they promise at COPs uh, since 2015, you know, it doesn't add up. It doesn't add up if we want to achieve the Paris goals. Um, and I think this year is also interesting because we're um, kind of one year before what is called the global stock take. Um, so the global stock take uh, will happen next year, and that is where um, countries will um, collectively see whether they are on track to meeting uh, the Paris climate goals, whether they are on track to limiting global warming to 1.5 or 2 degrees. Um, and they do that by looking at what is collectively promised, what uh, all governments have brought to the table. Um, so it's very important between now and uh, next year that uh, governments really, uh, you know, increase their 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 climate targets, um, and uh, that makes this uh, COP uh, particularly interesting. And also, uh, last year we had uh, the COP in in Glasgow in the UK. Um, there we saw an unprecedented number of non-state actors. I, I, I refer to non-state actors, um, uh, uh, businesses uh, and, and, and investors and, and uh, civil society actors, also cities, regions, local actors. Like an unprecedented number of these types of actors have you know, come forward and, and, and promised to uh, take climate action to build adaptive capacity, but also to uh, become climate neutral, for instance, by 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 the turn of uh, by the by mid century. Um, and impressive though it may be, all these promises, um, you know, by now we should see some evidence that um, the the these pledges are leading to some action, that there's some, you know, movement towards keeping those promises. So uh, in that sense, I think this is an uh, interesting call. Um, let's come, come back to that. But before we go on, maybe you can tell us a little bit about yourselves, you know, where you work, uh, what you do, how you got interested in, in the, this particular topic. Sure. Uh, I'm Andrew Deneau. I'm at the German Institute of Development and Sustainability, or IDAS, in Bonn, Germany. It's a research policy and training think tank. And we're interested in the interface between development and environment. 
So in our research, we look at transnational action and its role in mitigating and adapting to climate change with a particular focus on the global south. Uh, at COP27, we've got several events. Uh, one is an official side event. It's called Bringing Nature-Based Climate Action into Cities in Challenging Times. The event is exciting for us because we brought together a diversity of people, researchers, uh, local practitioners, policymakers, and from multiple countries. Uh, climate, the event is about climate actions which have benefits for nature, biodiversity, and society. And one example is rewilding cities. So increasing plant and animal species complexity in urban environments to adapt to climate change, to reduce pollution, to reduce environmental management costs and cool areas of cities. How did you how did you end up at IDOS? I was interning at UNFCCC after my second master and I was in an area that was tracking uh, non-state climate action. It's mm -hmm. part of their global climate action portal. That's mm -hmm. where I was working. And mm -hmm. uh, Sander was regularly at the um, at the building meeting with my supervisor and I. So this sure. is how we connected. Mm -hmm. And Sander, how about you? What's your you know background and where do you work? Yeah, so my background is actually in political science, and uh, I, I'm a researcher at Radboud University in the Netherlands. Um, and I did my PhD years ago uh, looking at the role of uh, public-private cooperation in sustainable development, uh, specifically mm -hmm. also looking at China. Mm -hmm. um, and by the time I finalized my PhD, uh, I heard from someone that the UNFCCC, uh, the UN Climate Secretariat, were looking to uh, engage the private sector through public-private partnerships uh, ahead of the Paris Climate Conference. So at that point, uh, I was triggered because I was a little bit concerned. Uh, uh, you know, I've been looking at these public-private partnerships uh, for a couple of years during my PhDs, and I, yeah, I saw that a lot of them were were greenwashing. <laughs> a lot of them, uh, uh, you know, were kind of distracting from government inaction. Um, and also a lot of the, um, the, 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 the partnerships that were presented as, you know, sustainable development uh, partnerships, they just didn't deliver. Um, so at that time, I wrote a letter to uh, the UN Climate Secretariat and uh, I offered to help them out. So they actually responded within a week. <laughs> wow. Um, so, 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 so like in, in a week's time, I... I, I, I briefly joined uh, like for a couple of months the UNFCCC secretariat uh, the UNFCCC secretariat um, and helped them to kind of design this engagement agenda for 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 climate action to kind of design the agenda in a way that could actually you know help climate action forward instead be, of becoming kind of a graveyard of of of, of um, you know good intentions um, or, or a podium for, for greenwashing. Um, so uh, after I left the secretariat, um, like I, I, I still still felt concern over, you know, uh, this, this agenda. Uh, it was called the Lima Paris Action Agenda, and that morphed into what we know as global climate action today. Um, and I was still concerned about like how these actions would develop, so I started to track these initiatives, uh, and I, I uh, you know, build a platform, a database to uh, uh, kind of 
you know, see how these initiatives were developing over time. And by now, that's a, a big database. I think the biggest database on transnational climate action at the moment. Um, and I think that work is still um, uh, relevant. In fact, the reason why we are in Egypt is that we see more engagement by investors, businesses, and, you know, all these actors more than ever. Um, uh, and um, I think part of the role of us as researchers is also to, you know, not only emphasize the potential of all that engagement, but also warn against uh, 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 putting too much faith in these kind of uh, engagements. Mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, some of them will be greenwashing, and yeah. Um, yeah. you know, they 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 will not always materialize in any real uh, environmental impact, and. Um, also, the most vulnerable people are not likely to benefit from 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 these climate actions. So, um, yeah, we're we're here to kind of keep an eye on these uh, uh, initiatives, also to to you know provide evidence um, and 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 to advise on how to best engage these actions or not to engage these actions. Um, for instance. Uh, one thing that I notice is that uh, a lot of people, when they think about climate action, especially also around the UNFCCC, around the climate secretariat, when they think about climate action, often they think about emissions reduction, right? But a singular focus on, on, on emissions reduction is just a very bad idea. Uh, you know, you need to consider... Uh, adaptation as well. You need to consider as well, you know, what the impacts are for developing countries. Hello, Quake Case with listeners. This is Ronnie Lipschitz, and you're listening to Sustainability Now. My guests today are Sander Chen and Andrew Deneau, who are attending the 27th Conference of the Parties to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, and um, we've been talking about various issues having to do with the conferences and and um, what they're trying to accomplish. So, um, the the you you mentioned um, that your your skepticism about achieving actual goals, meaningful goals, and and I'm wondering in your uh, in your view. Have these 27 or 30 years of negotiation actually produced any kinds of significant outcomes, you know, in terms of reducing greenhouse gas emissions, in terms of adaptation, um, and so on? Yeah, so... I I think this this is the most important question. Is there any kind of environmental problem-solving going on here? Um, uh, and I, I would say like the biggest successes uh, over the last 25 uh, to, to 30 years were mostly diplomatic successes, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, uh, undeniably, I think it, it has been a success that, you know, you get 200, uh, almost 200 countries to agree to a Paris agreement. Um, uh, but, you know, this is all kind of institutional or political effectiveness. And what we are really <laughs> uh, waiting for is, is um, you know, a clear path towards um, avoiding 
dangerous climate change, uh, which is kind of the goal of the 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 the, the UN uh, climate uh, framework convention. Um, and throughout the years, I think uh, different things have been tried out. Um, uh, in, in in 1997, uh, for instance, uh, the the COP was in Kyoto. Um, uh, governments have tried out to basically divide responsibilities. Right? Uh, you know, we know how much we need to reduce, uh, so you can simply make a calculation and calculate how much everyone should reduce uh, in terms of uh, uh, you know reducing greenhouse gas em emissions. Um, and, um, you know, if everyone keeps by that, then, you know, we, we have maybe solved the problem, but, uh, you know, in practice, it doesn't really work that way. Um, part of the reasons is that, you know, who is responsible for, for the current emissions, uh, the, the current share of, um, uh, carbon that we have in the atmosphere at the moment. Um, so, um, developing countries are definitely not as much responsible for what we see now than developed countries. So in Kyoto, you also saw that, um, yeah, we are dividing responsibilities, but we only divide responsibilities among the rich developed uh, nations. So in a way that is fair, uh, um, on the other hand, that's not enough. Uh, uh, you know, India and China are also emerging economies with uh, growing emissions. Um, and if they don't take part uh, in, in reducing emissions, then, you know, we still haven't um, uh, solved the problems. In fact, uh, you know, their emissions growth at that time was so much faster it didn't keep up with uh, like the the kyoto reductions didn't keep up i think what was also tried out in kyoto was uh, uh market mechanisms right um so uh, uh it introduced uh, uh, so called flexible mechanisms i think the most important of it uh, which is a clean development mechanism in which uh, uh, rich countries could invest in projects in poorer countries to uh, reduce emissions and those emissions reductions would then count towards uh, the investing country. And also countries that reduce more than their targets, they could sell their emissions allowance to, to other countries. And um, this is literally kind of trade in hot air and um, uh, obviously received a lot of criticism by uh, environmentalists. So um, yeah, that, that was definitely like uh in a way, uh, an experiment, maybe a dangerous experiment with uh, market mechanisms that just didn't bring us much in terms of emissions reduction. Um, and uh, the reason for it is is uh, also largely political, right? Uh, yeah. uh, the US, uh, then uh, President uh, George W. Bush, uh, you know, didn't ratify the, the Kyoto Protocol because the US just didn't like to have binding targets and they feared that, you know, it would increase costs for, for US industry and uh, China, for instance, would benefit from it. Um, and yeah, without the biggest emitter uh, at that time, the US, um, it was impossible for the Kyoto Protocol to deliver any emissions at scale, really. It, um, maybe, maybe it's important to note here for our listeners that although these agreements are international, 
it falls to the to the individual governments to take action to reduce emissions. And so there's nothing really binding about the international agreement. It's essentially uh, that countries have to decide they're going to pass legislation, they're going to impose various kinds of restrictions and uh, regulations. And of course, domestic politics then comes to play an enormous role in whether a country does anything or not. Um, right, and I think there was also kind of uh, one one hard lesson that was learned kind of, um, you know, with the Kyoto Protocol. And what is interesting, though, is that since 2009, uh, since the conference uh, in the COPs in um, uh, uh, the COP in um, uh, Copenhagen, we see that we're trying out something else. <laughs> and that is not kind of dividing responsibilities, not making the calculation and divide like who has to do what. But um, um, uh, to to kind of see what governments and countries can do uh, in terms of uh, climate action in their own countries. Um, so I think the Copenhagen COP in two thousand nine was um, yeah yeah is actually kind of remembered as a big failure, right? Um, uh, 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 governments um, uh, were meant to uh, yeah reach a new comprehensive climate uh, agreement and, and define targets and timetables. Now, this all didn't happen. Um, what happened instead was that um, the US, China, Brazil, and South Africa in the back room, they, 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 they drafted a, a political statement, the Copenhagen Accord, um, without any emissions targets. Um, and um, Part of that uh, Copenhagen Accord was that, um, you know, uh, countries uh, could voluntarily kind of commit uh, uh, climate uh, targets, including developing countries. So including China and India. Uh, so for the first time, uh, these large emitting countries, um, they 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 kind of opened the possibility that they would actually contribute to um, emissions reduction. But overall, um, uh, the Copenhagen Accord is not a, a, an agreement between all countries uh, under the uh, UNFCCC. So it was really not the agreement that uh, they were going for. And uh, therefore, it's seen as a failure. Um, but I would say that... Uh, that's where the experiment be, uh, began, like the experiment um, of uh, basically having a uh, potluck dinner where you have all these countries kind of bringing their, you know, their contribution to, to the table. And in the end, we hope that we have enough to eat, that, mm -hmm. you know, we keep uh, global warming limited um, uh, to, at that time, two degrees. Um and in fact, you know, if you look at the Paris Agreement, uh, it actually is building on this Copenhagen Accord because it also acts by that same logic where um, uh, governments around the world, um, uh, they submit their own pledges, uh, their own climate pledges, so-called nationally determined contributions. So the bot uh, this bottom-up logic was also in place, is also in place in uh, the, the, the Paris Agreement. Um, 
the guiding logic now is not dividing responsibilities, but looking at the ability of individual countries to make contributions. Mm-hmm. So that is what you also refer to, I think, when you say, well, it's about national politics, really. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, let, let's let's switch a little bit. This morning I read in the San Francisco Chronicle that yesterday the UN Secretary General warned the conference that the world is on, quote, a highway to climate hell with our foot on the accelerator. And what did he mean by that? Yeah, I I think, you know, what he says there really reflects what I see, um, you know, where the discussion is evolving also in the scientific community. Um, um, uh, we recently at the IPCC report um, um, and, and, and a famous uh, and important part of the IPCC report is a graph that shows the reasons of concern, right? Uh, tell us, show- tell us what IPCC is just for, for our yeah. listeners. So that's the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Ch- uh, Change. And that is uh, uh, actually a kind of a peer review process uh, of exist. So what they try to do is they, they, they provide authoritative evidence on uh, climate change, um, uh, the, the drivers of climate change, and also the impacts of climate change. Um, and it involves like, uh, a couple of thousands of researchers that review everything that is published uh, in the area of uh, climate change mm-hmm. uh, to kind of draw conclusions on where we're heading, what the likelihood is of climate change, what the likelihood is uh, of certain impacts. Um, and um, on the basis of that, uh, IPCC uh, uh, synthesizes uh, this knowledge uh, in in their reports. Uh, the, uh, these are assessment reports, uh, and they happen every couple of years. So I think uh, 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 you know we're, we're working towards the next assessment report again. But uh, one element that has been uh, a, re- a returning element uh, in this report are the reasons for concerns. And uh, the reasons for concerns refer to kind of the risk uh, uh, to 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 ecosystems, the risk of uh, s- severe um, climate events, uh, the risk to uh, of uh, distributed and uh, impacts around the world, the risk of uh, economic and uh, ecological impacts, and how irreversible they ca- might be, and at what temperatures. So uh, that report uh, shows that, um, you know, at 1.5 degrees, we will already see irreversible consequences. Uh, So for instance, uh, coastal and polar and mountain communities and ecosystems um, and virtual all coral reef will be affected and and the coral reefs will disappear. Mm Already but, uh, with uh, 1.5 degrees warming, we are at about one degrees warming now. And beyond that, um, uh, you know, our measures to to adapt, to cope with climate change will become increasingly ineffective. So in short, um, you know, once we are above 1.5 degrees, uh, the, 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 the consequences of climate change will be drastically more severe and 
our ability to 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 cope with it diminishes. Um, You're listening to Sustainability Now. I'm Ronnie Lipschitz, and my guests today are Dr. Sander Chan and Andrew Deneau, who are attending the 27th Conference of the Parties to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. And we've just been talking about um, what the prospects are in terms of climate change uh, if we don't start to act meaningfully on, um, on emissions and on adaptation. So I interrupted you, Sandra. Do you remember where you were? Yeah, uh, so... I was talking about like the consequences of even uh, at, uh, you know, 1.5 degrees warming. But, you know, the truth is that currently, if we look at our policies, we're on course for two to four degrees warming. (laughs) So um, many have argued that that in fact, these scenarios are very conservative um, uh, and and, and they assume too much like these politically defined goals of 1.5 and two degrees uh, and the likelihood that warming will exceed and even far exceed these temperature goals, uh, you know, is real. Um, so uh, you, you also see, and that is, I think the road to hell that, that, that um, uh, the UN uh, secretary general re- referred to. Um, you see the shift in the scientific discussion uh, where, um, so uh, a couple of years ago, uh, uh, Will Stefanet, uh, the, the Australian uh, National University and, and colleagues, they warned against uh, a hothouse earth scenario. So that is a scenario where at, you know, two degrees warming, you lock in future warming and that that is irreversible. Um, so um, uh, you keep a you you will have a kind of constant reinforcement of heating and this will lead to extreme scenarios like apocalyptic scenarios of mass uh, extinction um, and oceans will become dead zones and by now uh 2022 you know some scientists are openly talking about human extinction so uh uh, earlier this year, uh, Luke Kemp in, in uh, Cambridge University and colleagues uh, um, uh, published this paper called The Climate Endgame. And uh, they describe how a sudden shift in, 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 in climate, uh, in the climatic conditions here, um, could trigger failures that, that actually unravel societies and that will exacerbate conflicts and, and, and the spread of infectious diseases and, and cause economic stress, loss of land and water and food insecurity. Um, so these impacts, they play out probably simultaneously or, or you know, in connection to uh, one another. So what you get is a bundle of system-wide cascading failures, maybe a good comparison might be the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, although like, you know, comparatively, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic is mild. Um, But by now, uh, we cannot really tell whether the COVID-19 pandemic was a health crisis, an economic crisis, a social crisis, uh, 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 like, you know, everything kind of seems to be happening at the same time at the moment it's it's also uh, become an energy crisis by now so yeah. um 
Well, I mean, you um, can think of you can think of you know what scientists talk about are what we would call natural feedbacks, right? Positive feedbacks, but there are also social and political feedbacks, which I, I know the IPCC tries to take into account, but I don't think they do it terribly well. Um, and you know, thinking about the apocalyptic scenario. Uh, there's also going to be multiplication of all of these catastrophes by those social and political feedbacks. Um, I mean, if you talk about food insecurity, right, what happened between uh, Russia and Ukraine, you know, Russia blocking grain shipments and its impact on uh, the Horn of Africa, for example, right? That's a social political feedback, um, which, yeah. you know, would multiply, could multiply other kinds of, you know, droughts and things like that right yeah and uh, i mean what's really disturbing i think is the thought that you know civilizations have fallen over you know less climatic change yeah, yeah, um, yeah. and um uh, um i think you know i read i live in a rich country you too um, and we might think of ourselves as, uh, you know, relatively sheltered from uh, climate impacts uh, uh, or, you know, uh, we're rich and everything. But I, I really wonder whether we're really that more resilient against climate impacts than a lot of poor countries are. Um, uh, in, in Europe, uh, we have seen like this massive uh, political backlash uh uh, against uh, migrant, uh, migrants, uh, you know, as soon as, uh, you know, people had to flee, uh, 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 partly also because of climate-induced uh, uh, events mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and conflicts that are exacerbated by climate change. Um, so, yeah, we, we, we need to pay more attention to, to the catastrophic scenarios and not only kind of think of the, you know, politically defined goals of 1.5 and 2 degrees. Well, let's turn to your work, okay? Maybe there's a little bit more optimism there. Um, you talk, you're, you're focusing on what you call orchestrated and transnational climate action. So what do those terms mean, you know, concretely? What, and, and who are these people? So we're studying international and transnational initiatives, and we're de we define them as collaboration across borders with two or more actors and one of whom is a, trans, is a transnational actor. So these could be uh, businesses in Canada and the US, perhaps implementing in a third country. It could be um, businesses, organizations, uh, civil society organizations in one country, implementing in multiple others. But there's an international aspect. It's across countries, and it includes these uh, transnational or non-state and subnational actors. So transnational action could be the outcome of orchestration. And what do we mean by orchestration? These are uh, governments and international organizations activating society. They're bringing together societal and transnational stakeholders. And again, these include those businesses, investors, local communities, et cetera. And uh, this form of governance is contrasting, contrasted to the typical one that we're used to, which is top-down uh, government set regulations to enforce change. This That might not always work uh, because the non-governmental actors might not feel ownership over these externally defined goals. 
Also, the governments might lack specifics, like what's going on on the ground and uh, I know other sectoral knowledge. So the, the solutions that they come up with may, may not be the most effective. In practice, uh, traditional government's not obsolete. We need regulations, and but governments cannot as relinquish their responsibility and just point to the private sector. So really it's about all these actors uh, working together. So, so transnational is the, the sort of variable or no, it's not the variable, it's the constant. Um, so you're not counting all kinds of, you know, groups and actions and projects that are domestic um, and don't have transnational components, right? Of which there must be hundreds of thousands. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And um, uh, we focus on, on these transnational actions because so much uh, hope is invested in these transnational actions in global, uh, at the global level. Um, but one consequence is that, you know, um, a lot of action that is more local and happening on the ground, especially in developing countries, are not recognized or, uh, you know, uh, remain under the radar. Um, so one of the things that we also try to do with, uh, for instance, partners in India and Kenya is to find out, um, you know, what kind of climate actions are going on in those countries. So one th one thing that we found out um, in, in, in Kenya, for instance, is that um, um, and, and, and I think uh, if I remember well, like about 80 percent of stock listed companies in on the Nairobi Stock Exchange, they, um, uh, they, they, they committed to some kind of climate action. Right. And also one thing about uh, climate action in the global south is it might not be called climate action. Uh, it yeah. might not be identified explicitly as uh, climate action, right? Because, um, for instance, uh, building resilience or protecting uh, people uh, from 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 um, uh, food insecurity has always been uh, a concern uh, in in the Horn of Africa, right? Um, uh, and a lot of uh, 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 kind of decentralized uh, energy uh, 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 generation could count as climate action, but is not identified as, uh, as such. Uh, so uh, you're absolutely right. There's much more going on that is under the radar of governments and uh, international organizations and, uh, and us as well, I have to say. You're listening to Sustainability Now. I'm Ronnie Lipschitz, and my guests today are Dr. Sander Chan and Andrew Deneau, who are attending the 27th Conference of the Parties to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. Well, you, you mentioned, I think, earlier that, that you know, 29,000 climate actions have been documented since, since 2014. Um, and, you know, what is your sense of the, uh, the effectiveness of these climate actions why are they achieving goals or not and why has the international uh the, the un turned to these you know to this particular mechanism for trying to achieve goals i mean you've talked about that a little bit but maybe you can expand on it yeah um so i think um that, i mean the question is out there like uh what what the um 
uh, additionality is of these uh, uh, initiatives? Well, first, there's kind of concern over whether these um, uh, initiatives, in fact, substitute uh, uh, governmental action. So that could happen, for instance, when yeah. uh, uh, governments just, you know, um, basically deny responsibility and 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 kind of pass on um you know responsibilities to the private sector um but i think that um you know at the moment we also find that in the case of climate action we see a lot of the this non-state or transnational action happening in 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 kind of the territories of governments that are relatively ambitious. Um, so we don't see this substitution necessarily. We see that uh, um, uh, a lot of climate action by non-state actors happens when, you know, governments are also more ambitious. Um, and I think partly this has to do with the fact that governments have also seen the use of non-state action. Um, uh, as I said, like um, under the Paris Agreement, governments kind of propose their own targets voluntarily. So um, the question is not no longer about substitution. The question now is like, you know, can we kind of drum up as much action as possible because it helps the government to achieve targets. Um, so non-state action actually becomes useful for, for governments. Um, in some cases, we do see substitution. Um, so in the case of um, the Trump administration, for instance, uh, when uh, uh, Trump announced um, a withdrawal from the Paris Agreement, what you saw was kind of the reverse substitution, where um, uh, a lot of non-state and local and 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 uh, non-governmental actors have stepped up and 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 said like you know um, uh, no matter what the government the federal government does you know we will abide by the Paris Agreement and we will keep uh, the, the the pledge that was made by uh, the federal government uh, or even exceeded um, so um, in that sense I I think you know these uh, climate actions, these transnational climate actions have played a very important role. Um, and potentially, actually, these initiatives could help us towards, um, you know, uh, a pathway that is consistent with limiting global warming to two degrees or one and a half degrees uh, Celsius. Uh, actually, last year, we have assessed uh, the, the potential uh, emissions reduction of, of just a few large-scale uh, international cooperative initiatives that are registered with uh, UN Environment and uh, the UN Climate Secretariat. And what we found that is that if these actions are fully implemented, um, they would reduce um, uh, uh, emissions by about 16 gigatons a year by 2030. Uh, what does that mean? <laughs> um, uh, it, it means basically that uh, we bridge the gap to two degrees. 
So if these initiatives are fully implemented by 2030, we would be on track to limiting global warming to two degrees. So obviously, this is big news. I mean, you know, <laughs> uh, and this gives a lot of hope. Um, I have to say, however, that, you know, uh, assuming the full implementation is a very big assumption. And um, already in our analysis last year, we found that, you know, at least half of this potential is in question uh, because initiatives are behind schedule um, in, in, in terms of like, you know, where they should be uh, in terms of their achieving their targets and where they actually are. Mm -hmm. And many of them don't even report progress against targets. So they might as well be greenwashing. Yeah. So, um, yeah, uh, I, I think that that kind of underlines the importance of uh, tracking these actions and doing research and understanding what they are actually uh, achieving, not only looking at their potential uh, impacts. But I want to add one more thing, maybe. Um, uh, of course, in a direct sense, what these initiatives reduce in emissions is important, but it might not even be the most important effect. Um, because um, these initiatives, if they are successful, they could generate kind of uh, yeah, catalytic impacts. Yeah. They could engage more and more actors. They could uh, lead to more and more action on climate change. At least that is the hope, right? And cumulatively, that will, you know, bring us further towards, um, you know, a low carbon and climate resilient future. And that is, I think, the hope and the, the, the dominant narrative about these transnational actions. Uh, well, I mean, if you, as you mentioned, you mentioned the Trump administration, but it, it strikes me that these kinds of, of actions have been going on in the United States for much longer out of frustration with the federal government, whoever happens to be in office. Because again, you know, uh, presidents have to deal with Congress. And um, even, I mean, George W. was was a uh, somewhat of a disbeliever, but I mean, even Bill Clinton had to, you know, uh, pay attention to Congress as well as uh, the domestic constituency. Um, I don't know what it's like in, in other countries, um, but anyway. Um, Listen, we're coming to the end of our of our time together, and I was wondering if there's anything you might like to add or mention that hasn't come up. Yeah, sure. I can, if I can, I'll just summarize uh, some key points from the research in the sure. last few years. Sure. So overall, looking at these initiatives, about about six hundred and one, uh, we're finding poor performance in the past few years, and more so for adaptation focused or initiatives that. Uh, are looking at adapting to the effects of climate change. As well, in a recent paper, we identified qualities associated with higher performance. And when we look at whether new initiatives launched this year or last have these qualities, it's fewer than uh, the others. And then finally, we're not seeing benefits accrue to the global south. And this mm -hmm. is something that we'll continue to study. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think as we leave, um, uh, you know, in, in in almost two weeks, uh, when we leave uh, Sharm el Sheikh, I kind of hope that, uh, you know, there's, um, uh, you know, evidence that, um, you know, there, there there's kind of delivery 
on promises that there's evidence that um you know uh these initiatives that have been launched for instance last year um actually have uh, are are well resourced have you know clear uh targets and timetables uh so that they are likely to really make an an environmental impact because i i feel like these cops they have become so big uh they they have become a circus uh, like like uh, they 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 almost provide a a stage for theater for kind of showing off you know what your good intentions are um but that is not enough like we we also need to i think we need to have a podium to show uh not only like good intentions but also um you know how you know bring back for instance initiatives that have been launched a couple of years ago and have them tell us what they have achieved mm-hmm. and um and uh if they haven't achieved so there's no shame in that but you know how what does it take for them to 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 keep their promises right um so i think um you know um uh, leaving cop i hope that you know we we learn from from non-state actor engagement and we learn uh from uh past experience how to do this better how to more effectively support and and and, and um uh, galvanize uh, uh, the, the potential uh, in societal actors. Sander Chan and Andrew Deneau, thank you so much for being my guests on Sustainability Now. That was uh, quite informative and educational. Thanks so much. Great to be here. Thank you. Great to be here. If you'd like to listen to previous shows, you can find them at ksquid.org slash sustainability now and Spotify, Google Podcasts and Pocket Casts, among other podcast sites. So thanks for listening and thanks to all the staff and volunteers who make KSquid your community radio station and keep it going. And so until next every other Sunday, sustainability now. <laughs>